Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, public libraries are a democracy's best-kept promise, and the Columbus Metropolitan Library has boasted that it is open for all since its founding in 1873. Chief Executive Officer Patrick Lasinski talks this week about the challenges and opportunities facing libraries today, how the system has grown and evolved during his tenure, and how they continue to meet their customers where they are. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Also, The Confluence Cast is on Patreon. Find out how to support this podcast on our website, theconfluencecast.com, or at patreon.com slash confluence. The Confluence Cast is sponsored this week by the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission, or MORPSI, featuring stories about local and regional partners that envision and embrace innovative directions in economic prosperity, transportation, sustainability, and an inclusive central Ohio. MORPSI's transformative programming, innovative services, and public policy initiatives are designed to promote and support the vitality and growth in the region. For more information, please visit morpsy.org. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down here virtually with the Chief Executive Officer of the Columbus Metropolitan Library, Patrick Lasinski. Mr. Lasinski, how are you, sir? I'm great, Tim. Good to see you this afternoon. Good to see you. I'm sure folks are aware that we have a library system here in Columbus, but can you walk us through high level the about of the Columbus Metropolitan Library? You know, we serve about two thirds of Franklin County. We have the main library downtown and 22 branches, uh, really located from as far south as Canal Winchester to as far north as Dublin and New Albany crisscrossing back to the hilltop and of course the main library in the middle and then the others are scattered throughout and then there are six uh, independent uh, public libraries that uh, we have great cooperation with so that would include uh, uh, Grandview Heights and Upper Arlington, Westerville, um, Worthington, Bexley and Southwest which is Grove City. All of us, except Westerville, share a catalog together. So I think together we really provide um, seamless service to the residents of Franklin County and beyond. We actually, the catalog has 17 libraries all in central Ohio sharing resources. So uh, that is the result of something that's been in Ohio for a long time, which is the, uh, the state funding that we receive. So even though this is a local service, the state funding is a leveling agent, if you will, mm-hmm. that, um, that makes all of us uh, cooperate and uh, provide great service. And, you know, this is kind of un- indisputable that public libraries in Ohio are the best public libraries in the United States. And I think that's one of the chief reasons for it. Because of that funding and because of the commitment to those systems? That's right. Um, because uh, having worked in... Uh, Wisconsin, Ohio, 
Illinois, Colorado, and now Ohio again. When you see that independence, I mean, I worked in library systems where in order for someone to use the library who was not a resident, they had to pay a non-resident fee that wasn't mm. all. And uh, the state funding in Ohio really, again, I think the best analogy for that is it just levels the playing field and we all support each other. And as a result of it, we have a incredibly strong network of libraries, the library professionals collaborate. Uh, you know, it's a, it's the model for, uh, cooperative government. It really is. You serve on some boards of library professionals nationwide. Do you see that when you compare your, us to them, that we are above because of that funding and because of the collaboration with systems across the state? Yeah, you know, I, Tim, I think it's it's a little bit of the cliche that success breeds success. So because mm-hmm. we've had that in place and we because we've made libraries easy to use, and they're high quality libraries that begets really high library usage by our customers, which also translates into great support because pe- people see the libraries and say, this is an unbelievable resource. I mean, really, I, I kind of throw this question out there from time to time. So give me another agency that serves every demographic, every race, every religion, every age, you say, well, maybe the school system. Well, if I have kids in school or I have grandkids, but then maybe I'm an empty nester, so they're not. If it's a rec center, well, maybe I don't go to a rec center. It's a teen center or a senior center. We're defining it by the age. Columbus Metropolitan Library has said open to all on the front door since 1907. Mm -hmm. As we kick off the celebration of our 150th anniversary this year, which we will do in March, that promise has been kept for 150 years in this community, and that's extraordinary. Absolutely. You have been with this system and in this role for, I think we said we're going into our 21st year. You've been here since 2002. What changed over that time? We're going to leave the pandemic to the side for a moment, but what change have you seen over that time, and what sort of initiatives are you proud of having overseen? Yeah. So I, I think a couple of, of things would, would certainly um, stand out to us. Absolutely very visible to our community that we've been on an aggressive capital uh, improvement campaign um, that really started in 2013. So we've been at this 10 years and uh, we're in the process of working on our 16th project through that period of time. So you know, it's just an extraordinary amount of activity in the community that I think has really upgraded the libraries. But, you know, maybe especially since I'm in, we're in our 150th year, you also have to have a, a real uh, an appreciation for it wasn't that long ago. It was 1986 to 1990, 91. We redid the whole main library. So there was a whole of activity and built many of the regional libraries um, in the suburbs. You know, that happened through the 80s and 90s as well. But the point is Columbus and and Franklin County continues to grow. Um, The demands for library service have continued to grow and be strong. And so it's, it's really appreciation what sort of each generation of 
library teams have done to make this such a, a great system throughout. But you know, certainly in, in 20 years, I, that's one thing I would I would point to. Um, we had a sometimes people forget this because we're not on the ballot very often. But the last time we were on the ballot was 2010, and. Uh, mm-hmm. You think about that coming right after the Great Recession and the levy was expiring, so we didn't have a choice. And um, mm-hmm. you know the the community at a time when money was particularly tight, um, the community supported us by a two to one margin. We lost two precincts in the whole county. So I think having that level of support from the community has enabled us to do these things. So I think that's important. But along with that, Tim, is a feeling that uh, I remember how ecstatic we were the night of the election when we knew we had won by such a large margin. And yet you go home and you say, wow, at a time when resources are so tight, this community says we need to continue to invest in the library. And so, you know, we had we had job help centers and, you know, I, I think we were so responsive to the needs of the community at that time that um, I just think it's the, it's the hallmark of the Columbus Metropolitan Library. Of, there are many libraries that have not yet and are really opposed to the notion that their user base are referred to as customers. Most libraries, mm-hmm. many libraries refer to them as patrons, but Larry Black, who is the library director for me, started this whole notion of a strong customer service ethic and I think you see that every day in our buildings, are, it's part of our culture. Our people believe in it. They work hard at perfecting it. And there's such a strong service ethic among our workforce. And I hear about that all the time. And I'm, I'm just so proud of our uh, employees. So I think we've kept that up as well. I, I would say the, the work that we've done to try to really ramp up our presence in the out-of-school time space has been significant. Can you talk about that and what that what that means? Yeah, we tried as a pilot in 2003 when we were opening the new Linden branch. We put in a very small homework help center. Well, there's a homework help center in every location today. Well, we've moved to school help center because that's you know mm-hmm. just really helping whatever level you are in school. And, you know, that's... That's six-figure numbers of kids who come in every year to register for that level of service. And, and it's uh, schools can only do so much during 7.30 or 8 in the morning until 2.30 or 3.30. So mm-hmm. we're going to try to be strong players in the preschool arena, after school, weekends, and summers. And I think we've really ramped up our game there. This is a little bit behind the scenes for many people, but every month we deliver a bin of books to 400 classrooms in Franklin County to elementary mm-hmm. schools as a way of supporting the recreational needs of students. Whether they're in a, uh, a public school or a charter school, they, bought, they are constituents of the Columbus Metropolitan Library. They just happen to be in a school for a part of the day so we want to make sure we're there to serve them as, as best we can. I also think that um, I, it's not just the Columbus Library. I, I think the library profession as a whole has done a great job of continuing to evolve, transition, be resilient, be relevant. 
15 years ago, we're not talking about eBooks. I know we just mm-hmm. took the year and we had over 5 million circulations of eBooks that people are downloading from their home. I actually started in this business before the internet was a, you know, a common utility in a public library to see what we've added in that space. And then we've moved to wireless. I think libraries have just continued sometimes to lead, but always to be no more than a quarter step behind what our public expectations are. And I think that's really led to our continued success and appreciation and support in the community. Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you got here? You talked about the different systems you had worked in. I think some people are unfamiliar. You have a master's degree. I assume it's in library science. That's how you become a librarian. Talk a little bit about your career path and what brings you to Central Ohio. Well, I, I, I think I've told the story many times over the years, Tim, but I'm a, uh, it's almost a little bit of an accident that I'm a librarian and then a library director. I was maybe professionally more aligned with what you do for a living because I was a communications major, but with an emphasis in television and film. During my undergraduate degree, I had a year-long internship for a cable television access station. You kind of know what that is, where you see sometimes it's like channel three or two, where it's the city's public channel and you see ribbon cuttings at the, you know, the new civic building and, and government meetings and things like that. Well, I actually did that as a college intern, but that was in the analog world before digital. So we would horse the big cameras and switchers. Mm-hmm. And we would go to city council meetings, county commissioner meetings, and the in-person studio happened to be in the public library. And so for a mm-hmm. year, I kind of watched that go on and and I thought, well, I've always, I had always used libraries. And one day, I, as probably a 20 or 21-year-old, I worked up the nerve to ask for an appointment to meet with the library director. This wasn't a big library. It was in a town of 20, 25,000 people. And uh, Got it. I really, I, I started by asking him, how did you become a library director? Because it looks interesting. And, you know, I had all kinds of notions that maybe I was going to go to law school I was uh, accepted to a master's um, degree in strategic communications at the University of Wisconsin. And like six or eight weeks before it started, I had always had this library thing in the back of my mind. And I applied to the school and I looked at everything and I said, I think I could maybe someday be a library director. And so I went into the program having having never really done library work. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I got my first library job at a small town, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and uh, you okay. know, worked in circulation. And from there, um, you know, had successively larger libraries that I was the director. I know the first one was in Port Clinton, Ohio, interestingly, and the I think it had 13 staff. And the only reason I got that job was the first two candidates said no. And uh, so anyway, from there, just led to uh, some larger libraries. You know, Columbus was always known as uh, for its reputation as a great library system. And so mm-hmm. it was an honor to be uh, recruited. You know, like many who come to Columbus at first, you think, well, I'm not leaving Colorado to go to Columbus, Ohio. And then 
coming out and seeing the library and meeting the staff and meeting the board of trustees who were just so impressive in terms of the importance that they placed on the library. I knew pretty quickly that uh, not only was I interested, I really wanted the job and it has not disappointed. Well, and it's important to have that kind of support, right? Can you step back a little bit and talk about your governance structure and then also your funding? Because it's coming from a couple of different places, right? It's yeah. not just state funding. Yeah, so um, so there's a library board of trustees, uh, seven members, and um, they serve seven-year terms. Uh, so one is up each year. And mm-hmm. so there's some continuity that comes um, from that uh, process. And um, they have the, they're the fiduciary board, if you will. So they have responsibility for hiring the CEO, approving the budget, improving the major program of service, handling all the functions around auditing finance. You know, we're audited by the state auditor of Ohio because we're a political subdivision in the Ohio revised Mm -hmm. code. And their duties are all outlined in the Ohio revised code. And then in addition to that, we have a, we are supported by a separate entity called the Columbus Metropolitan Library Foundation. And that's a 501c3 whose sole responsibility is to uh, raise private money to non-tax money to support the library. And I can tell you since about 2012, 2013, they've raised almost $40 million. And to put Mm. that into sort of real life terms for our community without their help, we probably have three fewer new branches. So that's the impact that they've had. And then we also have a really important group that's been along a long time, uh, thinking that it's coming close to 40 years. Uh, It's our friends of the library. And that is a group that uh, organizes um, the volunteer activities. They handle annual book sales of material that we're withdrawing or have received as a donation. They lease space for the library cafes. We have a couple of those. We have a gift store at the main library and their proceeds too um, go in to support the library. And so, you know, all of that makes for some complexity and a lot of meetings, but, uh, <laughs> but a lot of people who, and, and that's where you get the appreciation for, man, there's a lot of people who want to step up and serve and who really love this institution. I can tell you in my 21st year, that's just incredibly inspiring every time I take a moment to think about it. And when you talked about the capital campaign that you guys, it's semi-ongoing. Is that fair, the capital campaign? Well, fundraising is ongoing. And then, um, you know, the last effort we had was a, a comprehensive campaign because what you, I think 15 and 20 years ago, a lot of institutions did a capital campaign because you're going to raise money for bricks and mortar. And what right. you now with many donors is some say, well, I want to support the programming for the staff, or I want to support the technology for the staff. So by taking an approach where we call it a comprehensive campaign, it kind of gives a menu of options and it strengthens your ability to raise funds. Um, when, uh, uh, you have, uh, options for donors. Got it. But that is happening through the foundation primarily. Correct. Got it. Let's talk about what the library experienced during the pandemic 
and how you guys continue to offer services and what is the new normal as a result of that? Like what are the services that will will stay and some of the things that you were able to revert back to normal? Yeah, and I think some of this is um, is really obvious and some of it is so very new, nuanced that you know, I think your listeners will say, oh, I didn't think of that aspect. Right. Prior to the, I mean, everyone knows we, you check out material, right? But there's probably a large constituency of ours, percentage of our constituency that doesn't realize that many people rely on coming into the library to use fax machines because fax machines are the only way that many benefit programs will accept applications. Hmm. So we do a booming business in fax service. You say, well, what about don't people scan? A, some agencies don't accept a scan still. And B, people don't have scanners. And so they're coming in to use that technology. One of the things they did I would say within a week was I called Doug Kreidler from the Columbus Foundation. And I said, Doug, we, whether or not you've thought about this lately, but we probably have somewhere around 1.8 million reservations a year to use computing time. Hmm. We are the biggest public computing utility by far in the county. By far. Mm -hmm. We're going to shut our doors. What's going to happen to the people to stay connected with an expectation that that teachers are going to teach remotely and reach kids and parents may not have broadband, may not have the devices, may not have the inclination uh, or the technical assistance. And again, for many people who say, well, everyone has that. No, they actually don't. A large number do not. So one of the things I'm most proud of during the, that happened during the uh, pandemic was working with Morpsey, working with the Columbus Foundation, and then more and more came on City of Columbus, uh, Columbus City Schools. We formed the Franklin County Digital Equity Coalition, which okay. um, is a live entity today that has moved over now to Smart Columbus. But for two years, um, I facilitated the meetings of nonprofits throughout Franklin County to really get to the root of this problem and to understand this was not just a library issue. Where do unhoused people go to get access to the internet, uh, low income housing and others. So I remember YWCA and others. So it was suddenly there's this large coalition of people working on this effort. And I think we understand that public policy issue so much better than we did before the pandemic. And there's so much better awareness. I mean, we were able to install services that we we had wireless in all of our parking lots, right? That was something mm-hmm. that, so that people could come in and you know, describe this. I think the term was coined after Hurricane Katrina when they said public libraries had blue screen parking lots because people were coming in to fill out their FEMA forms. The library still wireless so they could do that. And I think some of that, you know, was really transpiring. And that led to buying Chromebooks for kids. And it led to uh, a partnership with an agency called PCs for People, which reconditioned used machines. You know, all of that happened with the library's leadership, but with many other partners. But my point is, Mm -hmm. pandemic made that happen. And now we're on the path to really 
seriously address the fact that you know we may have 40,000 households in the county without broadband and in in today's world that's the fourth utility after electricity gas and water right so i think that happened i think we had an advantage over some cultural institutions in that while we had a strong electronic presence and we could push more to the e environment there's still so many people who prefer a book over yeah a digital book. We have an internal or a, a, a public strategy called My Library, which is really about how we say it, it results in a library working for me in quotations. And what that means is we've got to be where individuals want to be. The library I grew up with, it had 10 simple rules and you either followed them or you didn't use the library. Well, today's library is what's your mobile app? Oh, we can do story time on FaceTime. You know, publishers worked with us. They suspended the copyright so that we could do those kind of programs for the community. But at the end of the day, the curbside service of people coming up and still being able to get a bag of books or whatever, our staff felt incredibly helpful and useful. And I don't know that there was a time that the community ever felt more grateful and expressed their gratitude to us. So, you know, those are all the things that happened. And yeah, if you, you look back, Tim, the, you know, those first four months, what we thought COVID could be and the, you know, we were wiping down our groceries and everything else to, you know, the fact that now we understand it's something we have to live with. You know, one, one quick thing I would point out is, uh, again, within the first couple of weeks, we kind of had, we have a relationship with Battelle, who's, such a great uh, philanthropic partner to so many. But we knew they had the laboratories and we actually called them. We called the Institute for Museum and Library Services in DC. And we said, here's the thing about libraries. Our materials come back. What do we do when it comes back to protect our people or the people who might use those? So this was a major, we had major funding from foundations and others, the Institute for Museum and Library Service, Battelle did a national study on the presence of the virus as materials were coming back. And that served worldwide libraries. Library of Congress, the Smithsonian Institution, were all part of the advisory committee with us trying to study this mm. issue. And today we know it's airborne, it's not gonna survive. But in those early months, none of us knew any of that. And it was, you know, it was a little bit of a panic situation for many. And I think we had a level head and we're moving forward and sort of showing the leadership of the Columbus Metropolitan Library on a world stage. And that was uh, also something I'm really proud of during the pandemic. Absolutely. Well, and I want to commend you for, as uh, somebody who had a five-year-old at the beginning of it, being aware of the resources, even though I may not need some of them, being aware of the resources available and the communication that you guys were doing around that to to make sure people knew. So kudos for no, that. No, I appreciate that. Talk a little bit about, are there things that you view as 
because you're an advocate, right? You're in a, you're in a, you, you do have a day to day job, but you are in a, a public position. Are there sort of threats to the library? You've got your funding. It's okay. I, there's a lot of talk about maybe not in your space, but around the banning of books or the restricting of material from folks. I wonder how much of that you, you may hear about it, but is it affecting our system? Yeah. Well, um, we could probably spend the whole podcast on just this topic, Tim. You know, one, I've been around long enough. I'm in my uh, 40th year of working in libraries. That's unbelievable that it even comes out of my mouth. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, um, I remember sort of the 1980s and, uh, you know, there was a real push, uh, Jerry Falwell at that time was leading the effort to ban materials in libraries. Uh, people don't necessarily remember this, but Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife, uh, mm-hmm. was leading an effort around uh, videos and explicit lyrics and music. And so, you know, you, ha- you have to try to take some time at first to, um, to understand what the intent is of people. And I think Uh, You know, it's easy to say, well, these are book banners and there's just something wrong. You know, it's okay. They they see a problem and they have a level of concern. Now, we've always operated, and I think most libraries do, under the idea that um, we respect the right of every parent to guide their child's reading, listening, viewing in whatever they believe is appropriate. Mm -hmm. It's just not a right that extends your value system to all the other parents and children in a particular community. And, you know, this is, we have to remind people of those principles from time to time and to say that, well, intellectual freedom is a really easy concept to grasp when you agree. Right. But, uh, and, and, you know, there's a, there's another live line that we use in libraries is that, we pretty much have something to offend everyone um, in the law. <laughs> and, you know, I, I know that sounds just kind of tongue in cheek, but, you know, it's really true to say, um, well, I think it's abhorrent what Adolf Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf, but that's a common book that you find in libraries. Is it the Koran? Is it the Bible? What people might um, object to? The whole point mm-hmm. is where that space where people are free to come in and explore their curiosities and their interests and to learn and to accept or reject or refute or do whatever they want. I don't know who said this, but uh, I should, because uh, I use this quote so often, but they said that public libraries are uh, democracy's best kept promise. And mm. I really, I, you know, the, the longer I'm in this business, the more I embrace that idea and, and uh, you know, recognize the responsibility that comes with that. Maybe at a time when everything is so partisan, you think, can that possibly happen? And yet I invite anyone to come into your library and take a look at all of the people who are coexisting peacefully in the library. And if society was working as well as it does within a public library, we'd all be in a better place. And not to say we don't have issues from time to time. We do clearly, mm-hmm. but you know, so, so I, I think it's an education, you know, back to your original question, it just has to be an education process where we talk to folks about 
I understand you object to that item. Understand that you don't want to read it. You don't want your child to read it, but you can't extend that belief to others and, if, and remove something because it is in your eyes harmful um, to others. That's, that's not going to work for us. Mm -hmm. What are things that folks can do to support the library if they want to beyond being a customer, I assume volunteering, donating, but are there things that folks may not think of when they think of how can I support my local library system? Well, um, I mean, all of the things that you just mentioned in terms of use, in terms of volunteer, we have those, you know, that we kind of had to suspend that for a while during COVID, but that's coming back. Mm -hmm. Obviously the financial donations help us to do all of those things as well. But some of it is, um, educate yourself around library issues around uh, book challenges right now, you know, understand mm -hmm. it serves as a discussion point. I, I think right now coming out of the pandemic, we can't just say, Oh, we've reset and 23 looks good. Let's move forward. Mm -hmm. We've got elementary kids that have lost three years. This Tim, this is going to challenge us for a generation or longer. Mm -hmm. Reading is an essential life skill. And if you don't have it, you're in trouble. I always, you know, we, this, I'm just reporting uh, sort of data that one of the common characteristics of the prison population is illiteracy. Hmm. And so why, why did that happen? Well, if you can't read, maybe you have to try to find other ways to exist or thrive or do whatever, but you're missing a big part of life. Um, I never knew this. It's how uh, fast food drive-in started moving to picture menus mm -hmm. so that pe people could order a number five and see what it was rather than having to actually read it from a menu. So we really need to have people understand the importance of reading. We need to have them model reading and read to their children and talk about the importance of reading. That's just not about library. That's about society. That's about making sure people are equipped to, uh, to function in today and tomorrow's world. Absolutely. I wrap up every interview with the same two questions. One, what do you think Columbus is doing well? And two, what are we not doing so well or what could we be better at? And this does not have to be in the purview of your role. Yeah, well, we're doing libraries well, so uh, that's, <laughs> okay. uh, I like that. You know, I, I think there's this is one of the early impressions, and I still have it today, Tim, and that is um, having worked in other cities, I have a basis of comparison, but I was struck when I moved here about how open the city really is to people who come in. I had to fight in other communities to get a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. Here I was invited early on to, to be at that table. So I think this notion of, you know, we're a, a Columbus Foundation, whether or not they still use this, but the smart and open community, I think mm. that's real. I think that's in our genes. You know, efforts like the big table where we get the community together to talk about um, issues like that are really tremendous. I think we have uh, good and honest government throughout. You know, are, are there occasional lapses? Yes, mm -hmm. but really they're the, we all have to safeguard against those, but they're the, the anomaly. I think generally, you know, the, the level of, 
of quality and passion of our um, civic leaders is really strong. Um, and there is a strong sense of collaboration. Now, if I were to tell you what I think we need to do better, um, mm-hmm. still, there's too, too many, too many people being left behind. And, you know, let's hear about the, the, uh, uh, the excitement that we have about Intel and how catalytic that is for other businesses to move here. We've got a lot of people who don't, that doesn't even register for them to think that I can be a part of it. Mm -hmm. So let's take the 7,000 construction workers that we need. How do we get to the chronically unemployed or underemployed to say, this can be a doorway and an entry to you and you don't have to live in Westerville or New Albany or Worthington to be a part of that, that we really have to reach into the city and make sure that, um, you know, we, we create the honest probability of prosperity for everyone. And I think we've got work to do in that space. You know, we, we all know how difficult the housing issues are right now. And yet a lot of work to be done, but I commend a lot of people giving a lot of effort to it. So, that's the thing that that gives me a lot of hope gives me a lot of excitement the challenges are going to keep coming but i just don't think this community sort of ever runs away from a challenge or ever gives up Um, i think they roll up their sleeves and they get to work and folks who are perhaps not in the positions of leadership share their opinions openly and freely and i i think that makes for a, a great democratic process so i'm challenges yes hopeful Absolutely. Absolutely. Mr. Lisinski, thank you for your time today. Uh, I appreciate it, Tim, for the opportunity. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite librarian. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. Our producer is Philip Cogley. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week. 